Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee, all the best. The next few episodes of our season on global patriarchy will focus on the Near East, Middle East, and North Africa. And one critical underpinning of gender relations in this part of the world is Islam. I looked for a long time to find a book that would give us a foundational knowledge of the religion of Islam. And so when I found a book called Gendered Morality, Classical Islamic Ethics of the Self, Family, and Society, I was thrilled and I read the book and it was fantastic. I learned so much and I'm so excited to welcome the author of this book, Dartmouth professor, Dr. Zara Ayubi, to our podcast today. Welcome, Zara. Hi, thanks for having me. I'll just start by reading your professional bio and then I'll ask you to introduce yourself a little bit more personally in a minute. Dr. Zara Ayubi is a scholar of gender in pre-modern and contemporary Islamic ethics. She specializes in feminist philosophy approaches to the Muslim intellectual tradition. Her work includes a serious look at masculinity and gendered childhood, in addition to studying more traditional gender topics such as constructs of femininity, women's experiences, marriage, divorce, sexuality, and feminism. She has published on gendered concepts of ethics, justice, and religious authority, and on Muslim feminist thought and American Muslim women's experiences. Her book, Gendered Morality, Classical Islamic Ethics of the Self, Family, and Society, was published by Columbia University Press in 2019. In it, Ayubi calls for a philosophical turn in the study of gender in Islam based on resources for gender equality that are unlocked by feminist engagement with the Islamic ethical tradition. She's currently taking that philosophical turn in her second book project, Women as Humans, Life, Death, and Gendered Being in Islamic Medical Ethics, which was supported by a three-year grant from the Greenwall Foundation's Faculty Scholars Program. The project is a textual and ethnographic study of gender and gendered experiences in Muslim biomedical ethics. Zara Ayubi is an associate professor of religion at Dartmouth College, where she started in 2015 upon completion of her PhD in religious studies from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. She is the current president of the Society for the Study of Muslim Ethics. I mean, really so impressive. And you just bring such a rich background to the work you do. And I'm, I'm so excited to have you speak today. But first, yeah, if you can tell us a little bit about you personally, where you're from, and some of the things that make you you and what you bring to the work that sure. you do. Sure. So I am from Boston, and I grew up in Boston. And I was always sort of attracted to studying and learning about gender in Islam. I don't know exactly where that comes from, except for perhaps an exploration of my own identity. So I identify as Muslim. And it was that which led me to taking courses in college on gender in Islam. And I had simultaneously also been really interested in just scholarship in general and the academy. I mean, I my family sort of jokes and recalls this moment where I saw an advertisement for an exhibition somewhere in Boston that was taking place somewhere in Boston when I was a kid of these pre-modern Quran manuscripts. And it may have been, you know, a college museum or, or a museum downtown. And I when I saw that, my eyes sort of widened and I said, that, I want to be that. And 
I want to wow. study this or whatever this is. And, and I was mm-hmm. really drawn to, I guess, Muslim history just because of the beauty of what I was exposed to, you know, beauty of art and architecture and the cultural experiences that I had. And so just studying it was always in, an interest of mine. The gender piece, I think, was the more substantive parts of of studying Islam that sort of came about when, as I was growing up and felt like it's an area that I want to learn more about. And it just sort of grew from there. I didn't know, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm still interested in the arts and Islamic art and, and architecture, but it was, it was really just these larger questions about being and belonging and gendered being and belonging that sort of drove my intellectual curiosity. And I, after, right after college, I guess I applied to PhD programs and got in and thought, okay, this is meant to be. And it just sort of took off from there. And a lot of, a lot of what I ended up studying in, in my PhD program was sort of grounded in the beauty of the tradition and culture and so on, but also was, it equipped me with that, you know, the critical thinking skills and the questions that, and approaches and frameworks that I employ even, you know, now, several years later. And so that's where I'm coming from. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. I'd love to start our conversation really kind of at a basic level, just assuming that you're talking to a listener who really doesn't know much about Islam. Could you acquaint us with just the history of Islam and then specifically maybe talking about the gender dynamics that are present within the religion? Yeah, sure. So I like to talk about the emergence of Islam actually in the context of what was before it. So so Muslims believe that Islam and the the Prophet Muhammad emerged in a context in Arabia in which monotheism was present, as was various kinds of pre-Islamic pagan beliefs and rituals and and some of that was was polytheistic. But Muslims believe that Muhammad was born in Arabia in a line of succession of the prophets, of the prophets who are Abrahamic in nature and, you know, in lineage. Can I just ask you to remind us what year Muhammad either was born or received his visions and became a Yes, he was born in 570 and received revelation or, you know, believed to have received revelation from the archangel Gabriel at around 610. So, yeah, so really late antiquity and near the tail end of the Byzantine Empire and Sasanian Empires to the northeast and northwest. At the time, in late antiquity in Arabia, the idea was that there was a lot of sort of unethical belief and practice taking place and that Muhammad was Muhammad's role was to really remind humanity once again about God and, and you know, Muslims believe that there is only one God and it's sort of a unified God of, you know, Jews and Christians and every everybody really all have the same God and and that and, and so 
Muhammad really, his role was to sort of be this final reminder to humanity of God's unity, singleness, one uniqueness, oneness, and that everyone is accountable for their actions and behaviors ultimately to God. And so initially, you know, Muhammad was sort of rejected in his role because he was financially threatening to the people of Mecca who benefited, fiscally benefited from pilgrims from all over the Silk Road and Arabia, tribes and clans would visit a shrine in Mecca called the Kaaba, which was believed to be built by Abraham and his son Ishmael as a marker of monotheism, but then had over the centuries become sort of this catch-all for all of the deities of the people who lived and visited Mecca. So eventually Muhammad basically, his message of which was really grounded, and this, I guess, connects to my own work in terms of ethics work, was really focused on the ethics of people's practices and beliefs and around, you know, how they treat each other and how they treat nature and animals and approach life and think about what they're doing in the context of accountability to God in the, in the hereafter. And it's in that tradition that Muhammad eventually won the hearts and minds of people. And there's obviously a lot more nuance and historical narrative to that. But, but essentially, one major takeaway from the foundation, foundation story of Islam is that it's deeply rooted in this notion of remembering God because one is ultimately accountable for one's behaviors. And so acting justly and acting rightly is, is an important part of submitting to God's will and being a believer, really. Today, we're talking about nearly 2 billion Muslims in the world. And so, you know, some, some scholars like to think of that as also meaning there's 2 billion ways of being Muslim. And mm. so the life of the Quran and its role in people's lives is part of that variance and nuance in terms of how people identify with it or don't identify with it and what role it might or might not play in people's lives, how important it might be, whether or not they have the literacy to read it or have the educational background to understand it or interpret it or whatever. Because even if m many Muslims or even most Muslims are taught, you know, to recite certain basic verses for purposes of ritual, you know, by and large, it is a text that is less accessible to people who may not know Arabic apart from memorizing, you know, to be to be able to recite. And and so, you know, outside of translation, at least. And so that that gets into questions of authority and, you know, who has the right to interpret and so on. Mm -hmm. Well, that was my next question. And maybe I'll make this a two part question, specifically in terms of gender. I'm wondering if part one, if you can tell us a little bit about what the Quran says about gender. I recall when I read some passages that there were some verses that seemed to indicate egalitarian values, especially in contrast to the culture at the time. And so if you can share some verses that indicate egalitarian values and then maybe some verses that don't, or at least are interpreted that way. And then tell us who does have the authority to interpret the verses. Because I imagine, I mean, my background is in biblical 
you know, scholarship and study. And, and there is, just like you described with the Quran and in my religious tradition, a wide variety of interpretation. And it matters a lot when you're looking at lots of different issues. But let's talk about gender specifically. So gender in the Quran is a very complex and multi-layered question because by and large, the Quran is a fairly egalitarian text. And apologetics will say, well, it's the first text that actually spoke to women, first Abrahamic text mm. that actually spoke to women and addressed them. And and I mean, and mm. yes, that's true. But, you know, we have to qualify that, of course, right? I mean, it's a proponent of equality, fairness, doing right by those who are oppressed, those who are less fortunate, orphans, widows in particular. And that is the general ethos of the text, right? As is fairness and equality and accountability and and doing right by people who, you know, would otherwise have a very difficult lot in life. And so that general ethos is there and some of that is, you know, with respect to women, I mean there's a there's a chapter on women and then there's several verses on women. And I say on women, meaning like different aspects of life, right? So there's, you know, there's verses about witnessing and there's verses about widows and there's verses about inheritance and so on and so forth. The text is very egalitarian in that way. You know, same goes for, you know, the question of enslavement, which is important also to think about when it comes to women because of how historically in antiquity women a great percentage of women in the, of the world were chattel and were enslaved. And so that is also a gendered question. You know, the Quran is not necessarily an abolitionist text. And, you know, we know that, but it is indeed a text that supports freeing of slaves, right? Freeing of those who are in servitude and, and, and bondage. And, you know, and the prophet Muhammad himself had, you know, freed as many people as he could and things like that, right? So there's is certainly this understanding. It is a text that we have to read in its historical context when it comes to questions of gender and inclusivity. But but at the same time, you know, there are, and, and, you know, and there are potentially double standards within the text, right? Which you know, gender double standards, such as the question of um, testimony and witnessing and inheritance, and who you know, women were able to inherit according to the Quran, but men were, sons were inheriting double and things like that, right? So, so there is double standard, right? But the question is, you know, what that actually may have meant in that historical time period and, you know, why is it? Of course, that doesn't necessarily settle a lot of, you know, contemporary feminist questions if people are looking for answers to absolute egalitarianism from some of the verses that are very, very direct about things like, you know, that have double standards. Like, you know, if one is looking for absolute equality from a text that emerged in a world in which absolute equality was not even a thing, then you're going to be disappointed, right? But if you're looking mm -hmm. at the text from the perspective of what it meant to people, what impact it had on people at the time, and what that projecting forward, what that ethos might look like today, then there's room to play, mm. right? There's room to, mm, to think mm -hmm. about what are the possibilities of what that ethos actually could mean for, for contemporary questions. 
And so, you know, there's one verse in particular that stands out that everybody knows by number, by chapter and verse, which is in verse 434. Everyone knows that one. Like, you don't know anything else about the Quran, but suddenly, you know, verse 434. And it's the infamous verse or notorious verse, rather, in which the text is talking about how men are the, like the you know, depending on who you're asking in terms of translation, the protectors or the the men are protectors or somehow some people translate it as guardians, some people translate it as keepers of, of women and have a degree above them. And the question is like, what is that? Like, what is that degree above of men over women, right? And And mm-hmm. a lot of people have assumed that that means that's financial, right? That like men have, mm-hmm. because, because there are other places in the Quran where it's talking about creation and men and women are created equal in God's eyes, right? So like in God's effort in creation and God has created all the atoms and the particles equally, right? And all the and human beings are created and from a single soul and men and women are created from a single soul and in the same way. And so that equality in creation is really powerful and it sort of juts up this one verse, which is saying suddenly that men have this degree over women. And a lot of people have interpreted that to mean it's a financial description of time that men, or or of any time for that matter, in which men have a lot more capital and wealth than women. And that's sociologically, that's true today too, right? More of a description rather than a prescription of how things should be. Right. So some people will interpret or, it as a description, and others will dis- will interpret it as a prescription, right? Yeah. And okay. as, as perhaps people do of other verses on other topics, right? And so, hmm. and so that is something that you know is up for debate. And of course, the response to that is, well, what if women make more money? Then does that mean that they now have the degree over men? And so, I mean, the simple answer is yes, right? But the, I mean, the complicated answer is, well, does that, then do we not, do we not interpret that degree of men over women financially and do we interpret it in other ways? Or do we, in fact, continue to interpret it as a financial description of the wealth distribution of the world? And perhaps if that were, if the conditions were different, doesn't that verse mean something entirely different suddenly? And so these are the kinds of debates, right, that are coming up um, mm-hmm. from from this particular verse. But as I said, it stands sort of solo in the context of a broader Quranic ethos of egalitarianism, especially in creation. A lot of people will say, you know, the that human beings are created equal in the eyes of God, but on earth matters are different. And so like, even though every human being is accountable in the same way for their own actions and morals, and everyone is accountable and everyone is owed respect and kindness and mercy and so on, that perhaps on earth is different. And of course, there are plenty of verses that are talking about conditions on earth in which you're supposed to show kindness and mercy and fairness and justice, which are all sort of attributes of God as well that human beings are supposed to learn from. So as I said, you know, the the Quran is complicated in that way, right? There's like the historical layers and then there's the, you know, nitty-gritty interpretation of particular verses and texts that might bring about 
certain interpretations read in the context of others, you know, they may not yield that same interpretation. One of the foundational scholars of feminist readings of the Quran or women-centered readings of the Quran, I should say, is a scholar named Amina Wadud, who argued that, you know, the ethos of the Quran is absolute egalitarianism. And there are ways to interpret and understand specific verses that clarify the historical nature of the text. And that doesn't necessarily reflect back on God's intent per se, if you're going to read it in a non-egalitarian fashion, if you're going to read it for hierarchy, that is a more of a reflection on you than it is on the text or <laughs> on God. Mm-hmm. And so I think that she's not alone in that interpretation. There's numerous scholars who are sort of, who who both, you know, agree with her, but also, you know, expand on that similar approach, not necessarily on topics of gender, right? So it's the question of uniformity and approach is also, is also there. Your question about authority, who has authority to interpret? So technically anyone, right? But at the same time, you know, so anyone has the ability to read the text, especially now, right? I mean, when the text is so sort of democratized and everyone has a copy of it on their shelf and, the, you know, the printing press was an, a, an enabled that and, you know, and technology and everyone has it, uh, has access to it on their phones if they want it and so on, right? So it's a very heavily accessible text. Now, whether or not people read it, be, you know, that accessibility means translates to authority is a whole other question. There are certainly, and this might be, you know, I shouldn't, might be, this This is actually a, a really modern, modern phenomenon of people, you know, actually opening the Quran or figuring out the answers to their particular, you know, conundrums and going to specific relevant verses and so on. I mean, historically, there have been, you know, scholarly class, elite classes of scholars who have written exegeses, have spoken to people, have held audiences, have res- written in responses to queries that might have been written or orally delivered. And those scholars have by and large been men, not always, not exclusively, but have by and large been men. And there's sort of two major authoritative, three major authoritative traditions that have out overlapped. They're not silos in and of themselves where, you know, there's one is the, you know, people who are studying in a traditional seminary setting, not just Quran, but also the intellectual tradition, the legal tradition that sort of stems from the Quran and, and also stems from the Prophet Muhammad's sayings, which are, which themselves are actually a whole other corpus of texts and writings that have been collected. And there's a whole science on like the authenticating Prophet Muhammad's utterings, utterances and sayings and so on. So there's, there's that whole genre as well that we like to call Hadith criticism. Hadith is the, is a saying of the Prophet Muhammad that was recorded after his death. And, you know, those sayings sometimes are consistent with things that are in the Quran. Those are sometimes they illuminate what's in the Quran. Sometimes they have nothing to do with something that's in the Quran, but are like additional knowledge or additional things that the prophet did or practiced or whatever. And so they also serve as 
authoritative texts. And so, you know, the scholars historically have studied the Quran and the Hadith and created, you know, genres of Islamic legal thought and and so on. But there's also another stream that I mentioned of authority, which is sort of a more mystical, spiritually oriented stream of authority, which, you know, some people might identify as like Sufi traditions in which there is a teacher and a, there's lineages of and orders of mystical groups in which there is religious knowledge that's being passed down in an authoritative manner. And sometimes that's simply about spirituality and, you know, relationship to God and so on, and doesn't isn't necessarily gendered per se, although all of that can be gendered as well. But sometimes the knowledge that one might ask there, that a student might ask a, a Sufi master, Sufi sheikh, might be related to gender in the Quran or some some other issue that is really relevant to one's lifestyle and not just about spirituality and although the two are interconnected and so there are questions and answers being passed back and forth that are authoritative in that way for people. And then there's, of course, the authority that comes with a sort of informal study, right? And who is speaking for whom in that regard, a lot of times that's very deeply gendered. I should have said also, when I was talking more about the Quran, the idea that Muslims act according to the texts or that the texts are constantly guiding Muslims' actions. It's a remnant of Orientalist thinking, which was sort of like a cultural part of colonialism, in which Orientalists had thought that if they studied the texts of the Muslims, that they will understand Muslim psyche and Muslim thought, and then therefore mm. they could be colonized. And that mm. leads people to a lot of misunderstanding that, you know, if somebody wants to do something wrong or do something right or do anything at all in their lives that they're the idea that they're going to the text to find out or that the Quran somehow guides people directly their actions it may may or may not be the case and you know it's like saying oh yes now that I've studied the Bible I know everything there is to know about the United States it just doesn't make sense mm -hmm. right and mm -hmm. so there's so many pieces to our lives that interact with our religious lives and that drive people to act the way that they do. And so that's the case for Muslims as well. And so who has the authority? By and large, it is gendered, but there's women's Sufi lineages that I mentioned earlier. There's also women who have historically been the transmitters of the Prophet Muhammad's sayings, in particular, the Hadith literature, is a very female-dominated science, actually, oddly enough, because his wives and his female companions were really instrumental in recording what he was saying and, and, and so on. And so that becomes a really woman-oriented tradition in transmission and Hadith scholars. And then, and then the legal tradition is, in fact, very patriarchal and male-centered, but there were also women who were specialists in it. So there's certainly that ability of, of women to have an opening. Certainly in the contemporary period, there's both in very, very traditional as well as more progressive and egalitarian oriented modes of learning. There's, there's women who are studying religious sciences and the Islamic texts and so on. How much authority do they have in interpreting? Sure, they have authority. I guess the question is not always going to be who has authority, but rather how much of what people are interpreting is 
hierarchical and patriarchal and there's sort of a rehashing of patriarchal arguments as opposed to thinking about the tradition in egalitarian ways. And naturally, the more women that participate in the interpretive tradition, the more egalitarian the understandings and interpretations will be. But it's certainly not always the case that women interpreters are supporting egalitarian interpretation. As I've been listening to you, it's really heartwarming in a way to feel such a kinship of like, this feels familiar to me, to be honest. I can tell, you know, Jewish and Christian and Muslim people are called people of the book. And I think we're cousins and I guess feel a sense of kinship and solidarity sure. with in in the way that you're describing, you know, scripture and, and philosophy and the way it affects our lives. So Zara, as we, I'm, I wish we could talk for a lot longer and, and dive deeply into some of the things that you talk about in your book, but I'm hoping listeners will just order the book and buy it. But I'd love to hear what you think is maybe one of the most critical issues that we haven't had a chance to talk about yet in our conversation. Yeah, I think one of the most important things that I would want your listeners to take away would be recognizing the irrevocable impact of colonialism on Muslim beliefs and practices. And, you know, colonialism had an irrevocable impact on Muslim understanding, self-understanding, the way that they read their own texts, the way that they understand their role of their tradition, and particularly on understandings of gender and Islam. Because so much of the colonial enterprise was driven by this idea that Muslim women must be saved by European men from Muslim men and mm-hmm. uh, and their religion, which is backwards and oppressive and retrograde. And so that has stuck and been internalized so deeply when anyone even says Muslim woman or talks about Muslim countries, it's almost immediate, automatic, that people assume they understand the oppressive nature of Islam and oppressive nature of Muslim men and so on and so forth. And Muslims, in turn, have also internalized this characterization. One of the reasons why there is so much solidarity between scholars of or and lay people who are you know really intellectually inclined but you know who focus on egalitarian in, interpretations of their religious tradition across Judaism Christianity and Islam and one of the reasons why there is so much generative discourse taking place is because the religious traditions are in fact really similar mm-hmm. in terms of how gender is a complex and layered thing and historically contextualizable and and how it, it the interplay of of religious understanding and interpretation and exegesis and so on and so forth right and yet all of that goes out the window when we talk about muslims because suddenly that characterization that was made in the colonial period at the by orientalists that sticks right because that desire mm-hmm. to go and invade and conquer was coupled with this gender discourse, right? So like, you know, Leila Ahmed famously talks about how the colonial powers, the British colonial powers in Egypt were raising the question of wanting to educate and save Egyptian 
you know, Egyptian women while they were at the same time opposing feminist movements within their own home, right, within the UK. That characterization of Muslims as being backwards when it comes to gender, it's stuck. And Muslims themselves in many Muslim countries today felt under attack. The colonial period did this irrevocable number on understandings of self-understandings of gender in Islam and sort of put people in the mindset that, yes, absolutely, we are different and we are we do have a very, very particular way of treating gender norms and relations in our communities and and how dare these you know white colonizers tell us otherwise and try to modernize us and whatever right and and that was a departure actually from what muslims themselves believed about gender norms and relations per se right i mean it was a complete mischaracterization which was also internalized and so you know is gender segregation was it historically an issue? Was, you know, the other topic of conversation is the hijab and the veil and all of that, right? Yeah. I mean, it, you know, was that, were those issues in the pre-modern period before colonialism? Like, to some extent, sure, but it was an organic evolving thing, right? And organically evolving thing and women's role in public sphere and public life, I mean, and so on and so forth is is a very complex thing. And when everyone is sort of labeled as being oppressive to women and, you know, secluding their women and so on, all of that, it forced people to become much more conservative than they really were perhaps because they were under attack. And so mm. Muslims, you know, all over the world who were colonized had to f- defend their lives, their homes, their resources, their way of life, their religion, everything, right, from colonizers. And so that effectively changes the way you see your own religion, right, and how you characterize it, how you may want to differentiate it from the faith of the colonizers, which, again, may not have necessarily been that different than a Christian, but really, really researching into what became known as like the woman question in Islam, you know, is something that everyone talks about. Every scholar has some sort of pamphlet, some sort of site, some sort of speech or talk, or in today's period, you know, in addition to like books and written material, now everyone has some sort of position on it, whether it's declared through YouTube or videos or, you know, podcasts, whatever, everyone has a position on it because it's become a thing, right? Not only has it become a thing, it continues to be a thing, right? And that history changes the way that people see their own tradition and gender norms and relations within it. You know, to the point that we're having this conversation and this podcast, and it seems like we're like worlds apart. Whereas we're then we realize, oh, we're not worlds apart. But why is it that we right. think that we're worlds apart? It's this major historical, you know, time period of colonialism that sort of created this greater distance in understanding of the religious traditions, and but then also how that carries forward in terms of the the continued understandings between religious traditions and within religious traditions. And so, you know, we are having to reckon with this legacy of colonialism and its cultural counterpart, Orientalism, even now. And that 
is something that when you think about Muslim countries today and gender dynamics within Muslim countries today, that impulse to be conservative comes directly from colonialism and many Muslim women are having to combat it or fight against it or reckon with it in some way, right? Think really deeply about, well, is it true? Like, is the, does the tradition really say X, Y, or Z that this patriarchal sheikh or imam or whatever is saying, or my parents or my family is like holding on to these very conservative, you know, values? Is it true? And people question it and rightfully so, but this conservatism might be there to begin with because of the colonial context and its legacy mm-hmm. on Muslim mm-hmm. societies. That is so, so useful. I'm so glad you brought up that period of history where you had these Victorian men were coming to Egypt and wanting to save Muslim women and then going home and prohibiting English women from voting and having any rights in there. It's just the hypocrisy mm-hmm. of that. So my follow-up question to that would be for myself and for listeners, for people who are not Muslim and are wanting to learn more and wanting to be like truly supportive and allies, how can we make sure that we aren't falling into those Orientalist tropes and those kind of accidentally, but like imperialist ways of thinking? Like when, when a bunch of white people are discussing hijab, for example, do we even have the right to be discussing it? How could we possibly understand it from the outside? What would, could you offer any advice or? So yeah. I would say first, right off the bat, hijab is the, and I say this to my students all the time, it's literally the most superficial topic that one can, hmm. you know, hone in on and focus on and because it is about the surface, right? It literally superficial mm-hmm. in that way. And it's about appearance and surface. And while hijab might be an indicator of other things and have in and of itself, it has so many meanings that to, to dwell on it and to try to decipher its meaning and so on is really just the, a tip of a very large iceberg and those other pieces of the iceberg might be more important and in fact are more important and so if you're thinking of i mean and it's come up most recently in the hijab issue has come up most recently in iran Mm -hmm. you know the iranian revolution in itself in from the 1970s late 70s and early 80s really sought to sort of push back against what they thought was and what really was i shouldn't just say what they thought, what really was a lot of American and and British interference in their local political lives. And that ended up being and sort of a hyper example of what I was talking about earlier, this conservatism that sort of took over Muslim countries. It's the Iranian revolution is an example of that. And Mm -hmm. the hijab was just one way of politically controlling women in response to this perceived attack mm-hmm. on Muslim culture, on on Persian on Iranian culture, and so on. And it's just one way, right? It's one thing out of other things that... And so I'm just going to put the Iranian example aside. I mean, in many Muslim countries, to learn about the history, the political history, the unique political history of each particular nation state, if whatever area or region of the world that you're interested in thinking of, knowing that it is unique, right? Knowing that there are circumstances that are unique. The Muslims, yes, are 2 billion. Today, there is really no such thing as Islamic law that might be holding everyone in, you know, in some sort of unified 
way of living, right? I mean, there is only state law. Everyone just, you know, and, and state law might be inspired by religious law to varying extents, depending on what country you're talking about, or in the context of European or, or American Muslims, right? What to the extent to which Islam or Muslim ideals or beliefs are governing people's lifestyle choices varies, right? And it's entirely voluntary in that sense, because there's no sponsored version of Islamic law. And not that anyone would want there to be either. The thing that I would want most would be for people to make themselves aware of the historical context of who they're talking to and who they're talking about and learning about, but also being cognizant of how much space they are taking up in a given situation of allyship, right? So solidarity means not speaking for, but but giving voice to, right? So if you have a platform, give that platform, that, you know, using your privilege to give that platform to somebody who doesn't have platform to let them speak for themselves, right? Is a huge thing that people just don't know how to do, apparently, right? And and that white feminists have been really guilty of not being able to step out of the, the spotlight and, and actually use their privilege to give the microphone to somebody else. And so there's that's sort of just step one, right? Is to use one's privilege to to uplift other people's voices and not in their, in your words, but in their words, right? In their own words. And then to really just learn and listen and as opposed to speak out and then ask what would be supportive, right? What would be a supportive thing to do as opposed to speaking for and presuming what certain things might mean or not mean? And, you know, if hijab is in fact some sort of important issue for someone because that's what they know or what they think they know, educating themselves on what it, on the myriad meanings of hijab, right, is a place, a great place to start. And it's certainly has a lot of multiple meanings. I mean, it, it can signify political power, it can sort of signify spirituality, it can signify, you know, empowerment, it can be a expression of modesty, it can be an expression of piety, can it be not wearing it or wearing it could be a sign of modesty, because wearing it in the context of a place where nobody else wears it is actually standing out, right? Or Mm. so that's like kind of drawing attention to oneself versus not wearing it in a place where everybody's wearing it is again, it's calling attention to oneself. So there are so many interpretations that people have of it, that, you know, if that's even an issue for for somebody, then educating yourself on it to begin with and to try to move beyond hijab questions is another thing yeah. that would be important. On that, I, I'll just, I just want to throw this in here because it was a really enlightening for me. My daughter, Lucy, pointed out she's taking a Middle Eastern history class right now. And her professor said, just to your point earlier about imperialism and colonization, that many women describe that they wear hijab directly in kind of protest of colonization. And like, you think this is bad and you're judging me. And it's a way of showing solidarity with their own culture and claiming pride in their own culture. And they're, they're, you know, aligning themselves with their families. You know what I mean? Rather than some white judgmental outsider coming in and making a judgment. And I'd never thought of that before and thought like, oh, there's just, it's just too complex. And it made me honestly 
just want to to take a step back and just think all I want to do from now on is listen, to be honest. And that I just don't even, I'm not interested in the pursuit of like having opinions on it. It's just, I just want to learn. Yeah. I think it's a very powerful thing to think about the ways in which, and it's just even the structure of the show, right? It's to think about the ways in which there are in fact, overlaps in how people understand gender in Islam and how people understand gender in other religious traditions and other Abrahamic religious traditions and what that and keeping that in mind as a, a foundation to then further question, well, then what happened, right? Why is it that we have this disconnect and that disconnect is very much a historical product and the context of colonialism is, in fact, in, integral to learning about what that disconnect looks like and how that carries forward in contemporary times and how so much of the conversation is, as you start already started alluding to, is also race-based, right? So it's mm. most of the Muslims of the world are brown and black mm. and even East European Muslims would, you know, which are a much smaller percentage of the Muslim global Muslim population, but not to assume any particular racial background. There is, however, nonetheless, a very racialized component to colonialism, which sort of carries forward in that. And as you said, white women who are coming from non-Muslim backgrounds do carry that racial privilege as well as religious disconnect or the ways that, you know, Christian the Christian mission was bound up in colonialism and that how that continues to sort of have a legacy in our contemporary dis solidarity discourses as well. Mm -hmm. Wow. Well, thank you. Thank you for all of that. Dr. Zara Ayubi, what an honor to have you here today. I'm so grateful for your book, for all of your work and for joining us today. Thank My you so much. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciated this and thanks for inviting me. Before I go, I'd also like to thank Sam Rose Preminger for our production, Brianna Jovan for our editing, and Lindsay Olibest for our social media. And thanks to all of you for listening. As always, you can head over to our website at breakingdownpatriarchy.com and our Instagram account at bedownpatriarchy for additional content and resources for today's episode. And if you'd like to help support the podcast, please consider sharing it with others, posting about it on social media, and leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. That's all for this week, but be sure to join us again next time as we continue to become more educated, informed, connected, and active on Breaking Down Patriarchy. <laughs>